I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it greater under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on January 10th, 2023. Episode 87, The Republican Party past, present, and future. 14 votes. That is how many times the House of Representatives had to take a vote, with backroom deals and concessions on policy and principle, to elect the new Speaker of the House. The debacle that was this attempt at normal operation of one of the chambers of Congress, though publicly a bit embarrassing for Republicans and the United States more generally, is a mere drop in the bucket of what is currently wrong with the grand old party. And what is wrong with it may not be those holdouts on those prior 13 votes. But let's start at the beginning to see how we got here, from the party formed in 1854 to bring together those who opposed allowing slavery to expand into the Western territories. What had evolved into a system of the parties of the Democrats and the Whigs was challenged by differing views among members of both parties on the issue of slavery. It was in response to the Kansas-Nebraska Act, a law that would have allowed slavery in any new territory of the United States simply by mere popular vote, that led members of the Democrat, the Whigs, and some smaller political parties, such as the Free Soil and American parties, to come together to form a new party to oppose this legal proposal. That new party was, and remains today, the Republican Party. The goals of this new party were conservative by definition. It did not seek complete upheaval of existing systems. But recognizing the abhorrent nature of slavery, and thus seeing a chance to stop its growth in the relatively new nation, members of this new party saw an opening when it came to the newly acquired and populated western parts of the nation. It would be only a short time after its formation, in the 1860 presidential election, that the Republican candidate Abraham Lincoln would win the White House, in large part due to the internal struggle among members of the Democratic Party about the very issue of slavery, though the viability of this new party would be tested as the Civil War broke out. President Lincoln's success in that war, and in holding the Union together, placed the Republican Party at the forefront of the nation's survival and Reconstruction. In part, the party was strengthened by the Civil War's forcing it to confront not only the cessation of the expansion of slavery, but its acceptance even in states where it already existed. A shift to a focus on the total abolition of slavery was not only right in the moral sense, it made good sense strategically as a way to increase chances of success in the war. 
the Emancipation Proclamation would come two years before the war's actual conclusion. With these beginnings, the Republican Party would become the party of freed slaves and abolitionists, while those still viewing slavery as acceptable and even necessary, particularly for various agricultural businesses in the South, would be driven to the Democratic Party. It is also during the post-war Reconstruction period that the Republican Party would begin to form its connection to big business. The reason for this reality is that in the 1800s, it would be the Industrial North that would be the area of primary support for the GOP. The political and sometimes physical battles that ensued during Reconstruction would more clearly divide the nation into these two parties. The problem for the Republicans is that as more years passed since cessation of actual war hostilities, it became associated more with wealthy businessmen than with the everyday citizen. Whether this association was correct by the people, as we know, what matters in politics is what people believe, not what is actually the case. As the 20th century began, there would also be a progressive push for more support for the common man. What is often overlooked when seeing the rise of progressivism at this point, in the first quarter or so of the 20th century, is its foundation in the principles of Karl Marx, principles that may appear at first glance attractive to those who are struggling, and see those at the top who are not. These principles are counter not only to the freedoms cherished and ingrained in our system by our founders, but also are counter to the concept of freedom for those who have previously been oppressed in our history for those held as slaves and their families. So the Republicans' consistent position against progressive moves was still consistent with its support for freedom and freed slaves. Progressive policies, you see, always have stripped away true freedom for seemingly attractive immediate gratification in the form of government assistance. So it is at this point that the Republican and Democratic parties again make some notable shifts. Though support for the Republican Party would remain strong into the 20th century and through much of the 1920s, the public connection between Republicans and big business would tarnish the party when in 1929 the stark market crash thrust the nation into the Great Depression, a situation for which at least some blamed the Republicans' willingness to give big business more freedom from regulation, paired with a reluctance that remains even today among Republicans to view the government as a source, often the primary source, for assistance for those in need. It was the fall from grace that financial disaster brought upon the party that led to the rise and almost authoritarian control of the United States by Democratic President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was first elected in 1932 and would hold the nation's highest office until his death in 1945, a year after winning re-election to his fourth term as president. In reality, though, Republicans would hold the office of president several times through the mid-20th century, including the administrations of Eisenhower, Nixon, and Ford, the influence of the party, however, would wax and wane as it attempted to rally around some clear set of principles, and the party would continue to have its own internal battles between more moderate views of those like Dwight Eisenhower and more conservative views like conservative hero Barry Goldwater. The push for more conservative leaders, meaning those with more limited views of government and support for free markets, would continue to plague the party and wasn't aided by the Watergate scandal that overshadowed any other portion of President Nixon's administration. It would not be until the resurgence of the party in the 1980 presidential election with the nomination of Ronald Reagan for president that it again became a party with clear principles and a focused agenda for America. By that time, however, much of the African-American support that had helped launch the party in its infancy had been driven away following the Great Depression and Roosevelt's New Deal. Whether anyone wants to admit it or not, it was the luring away of these voters by promises of government benefits that changed the entire landscape of both parties. It is not, however, a result of a racist Republican Party and a racial equality-seeking Democratic Party. 
there are reasons to consider the truth to be more the opposite of this claimed reality. But again, it matters not what is, but what is believed to be. With Ronald Reagan, the Republican Party had the perfect combination of likability, principle, and experience. Though jokes would continue that the party nominated and the nation elected a former actor, President Reagan's ability to communicate would bring a better understanding of the real principles of the Republican Party to the masses. President Reagan's success also highlighted another key difference between the two major modern political parties, and that was their views of the military. As has often happened in politics, dissatisfaction with the current president, Jimmy Carter, and the state of the economy on his watch resulted in quite a large number of previously Democratic voters supporting Reagan, not once, but twice. As President Reagan actually succeeded in implementing policies long favored by the Republican Party, albeit not all of them and not all without compromise, a more defined and principled Republican Party came into view, one that was showing recovery from the scandals of Nixon or the blame for past economic crises. This modern Republican Party was one of limited government, namely federal government, and of international success, pushing the Soviet Union into such economic turmoil that shortly after Reagan left office, replaced by his Vice President George Bush, that superpower would crumble. You see, Republican support of the military had continued consistently through the eras of Vietnam and Korea, where the Democratic Party had had an almost anti-military bent. But with this success, Reagan proved belief in and support of our military better serves us all in our national security. But now that the focus was no longer on communism as the enemy at the gates, or at least the focus had shifted, what would define the Republican Party going forward? It would not be until the administration of Democrat Bill Clinton that another resurgence, both in clarity of position and popularity, of the GOP would become obvious. It is not uncommon during midterm elections for the sitting president's party to lose seats in the House and Senate, and often, if the president's party controlled either or both of those chambers, for that control to be lost. In part, that comes from Americans' actual preference for divided government. Though we claim to deride gridlock and a failure of the parties to compromise and cooperate, our nation is inherently built on a desire for just that. It is its own check and balance on control falling into the hands of a single person or party. When the Republican Party regained control of the House of Representatives in 1994, it was no small feat. Though in an uncommon situation, the Republicans actually gained some seats in the House in 1992, despite Bill Clinton's winning the White House, those gains would be increased notably in 1994. In that election, the party gained a remarkable 54 seats. The party also gained nine seats in the Senate, taking control of that chamber as well. It had not been since the 1950s the Republican Party had controlled Congress and Senate control for the Republican Party had only been fleeting in that time, with the Democrats controlling that chamber for 34 of the previous 40 years. There was a reason for this success, and one that today's candidates might do well to remember. The contract with America was the creation and formalizing of a legislative agenda that the Republicans promised voters would guide their activity if they regained control of the House. Unlike a single candidate's campaign platform, or even a party platform, the contract with America represented cooperation across the nation and among numerous candidates to commit to a clear and specific agenda should they be successful as a group of gaining control. The contract was not bullet points of vague positions. It was a list of eight detailed reforms the party would seek to implement and ten bills upon which they would promise debate and vote. The subjects covered included government reform, tax cuts, crime, balanced budget proposals, term limits, and reforms of everything from the welfare to the social security systems. 
This unified front to combat the seemingly more and more liberal aspirations of the Democrats led by Bill and Hillary Clinton focused on draining the swamp, though not using that terminology that would become the battle cry of Donald Trump. This was an idea that long-time and unaccountable bureaucrats could not be in charge of the U.S. government. This concept is not a Trump one. It's a long-standing Republican one that, until tied to Donald Trump the man, was something to which most voters actually could agree. Members of neither party are rarely comfortable with the largesse of the unelected government employees that typically affect their lives more directly than their elected officials. Unlike the generic promises of so many politicians before and since, the contract with America gave voters a clear choice about the direction they wanted the nation to move. A unified party message strengthened it, a concept that should not need much explanation, but which today's major parties fail to be able even to attempt given the divisions among their ranks. So what changed between 1994 and today for the Republican Party? Individuals are often cowards. We all are at some time. They do not typically like to act alone, and when forced to do so, may cave and go with the flow. In addition, some hold out on some claimed principle just for the sake of being contrarian. What the Republican Party of the 1990s had that has been lacking for some time was a common and unifying belief system. Admittedly, some of what brought so many together to work in unison, rather than for their own individual political gains, was a dislike of the Clintons, just as today's Democratic Party, despite its own divisions, has found a way to unify hatred of Trump. But there was another kind of unity. Both parties have often found more common ground in the modern era in opposition to the leaders of the other party than in finding a consensus among themselves. And that's not always a bad thing, nor is it an entirely new thing. For picking who we wish to lead us is a way of identifying in what direction we wish the nation, our states, and local communities to go. But it also allows those involved to ignore the need for consistent revisiting of foundational principles. Just as opposition to an expansion of slavery created the party, what now actually does the Republican Party stand for? In the 1980s and 90s, for example, it regularly sought to take actions to limit and decrease the size of government, to reduce regulation of private industry, to lessen the tax burden on average taxpayers, all while keeping Americans strong militarily. Though the party's members often fell far short of its claimed goals, at least it was still agreed those were the goals. Balanced budgets, term limits, a shrinking of federal bureaucracy, and less government intrusion. In the start of this century, however, the Republican Party fell victim to peer pressure. And sadly, the peers pressuring it were not peers at all, but foes. Afraid of having the labels racist, sexist, and uncaring tarnish them, members of the party stepped away from legitimate claims that their policies did not, in fact, show a lack of caring for minorities, women, or the less fortunate, but just the opposite. But with liberal news outlets more than willing to accept, if not outright push, the false narrative that smaller government and less regulation were codes for things like racism and heartlessness, the party was pushed away from its core ideals and moved it into a new and impossible realm of what was termed during the era of President George W. Bush, compassionate conservatism. Don't get me wrong, there is no error in being compassionate. It is a virtue. But what this new moniker did was send the message that prior Republican policy preferences had not been compassionate, essentially giving in to the decades or more of bullying by Democrats to admit Republican principles, though based on the same concepts of freedom that led to our very founding, were somehow evil and not intended to serve the greater good of the nation. That is not to say that policies implemented by the President and Congress during Bush's terms in office were not good ones, though as with any administration, there was the good and the bad. 
but only that Republicans appeared cowed to avoid saying anything that might offend or be used to claim offensive intent. It is here we start to see the more open shift in society, away from honest discussion, and toward the current state of sustained offense and victimhood. Though those things are creatures of the left, they were allowed to grow by the right's refusal in the current century simply to refuse to accept the incorrect characterizations of the party's principles and the motives of its representatives. There is nothing racist, sexist, bigoted, or evil, or uncaring in basic Republican principles of limited government, low taxation, and a strong military. Though many fault the events of September 11, 2001, as signaling an end to any hope for real compassionate conservatism, the concept was never viable given that it required those on the right regularly to sacrifice deeply held principles in order to appear more acceptable to their critics. The problem is that long before Bush's attempt to soften the views of his party, the left had defined compassionate as meaning support for government benefits programs. Any attempt to reform or eliminate rather than expand such programs would be viewed incorrectly but automatically as uncompassionate. For far too long, Republicans' belief that poverty, for example, was not eradicated by government programs, but by less government interference and more local community support, a valid belief, by the way, has been allowed to be characterized as not caring for the poor. Deregulation, which long-term can benefit everyone, has been dismissed as just some form of payoff to Republicans' rich business donors. But businesses do not appear out of thin air, as who knows how many middle or lower class would-be entrepreneurs are unable to launch their own business ideas due to the high cost and confusion that surrounds licensing and permitting, procedures and fees, not to mention ensuring compliance with all of the other laws that can interfere with the launch of a new business. Compassionate conservatism also buys into the proven falsehood that government assistance and programs, rather than addressing root causes for family decline, poverty, racial disparity, and educational failings, are the proper course of action. Government programs don't solve these problems, and for that reason, they don't solve the problem the benefits claim to be geared towards solving. What is the right balance between standing up for your principles and compromising to allow the government to act, however? Was the shift from the Reagan Republicans, which included a coalition of longtime Republicans and more right-leaning Democrats, to a party more willing to accept government programs as the answer just needed? Was this just a needed reassessment of what was best for America? Or was it a misstep that has led to the division we now see today? Is it upholding the oath taken when assuming office to compromise your principles just to make political friends? No doubt policy decisions are not easy but they are less difficult when the person making the decision has a clear set of principles on which to base his decision-making. The Republican Party has seemingly forgotten what its principles are. Donald Trump was not a likely leader of the Republican Party. Long identified as a friend of prominent Democrats, if any speculation had been made about his running for office years before, for most of his time in the public sphere, a reasonable assumption would have been that he probably would have run as a member of the Democratic Party. So when Donald Trump threw his name in the contest for the Republican Party's presidential candidacy, it was likely a surprise and viewed as a bit of a folly. Of course, as the primary season went on, it became obvious that Trump was connecting with the average Republican voter in an unexpected way. And what his nomination should have taught us, if nothing else, is that the party had strayed far from what its rank-and-file believed was best for the United States. They were tired of backroom deals, of apologizing for who they were and what they believed, and they were so tired of it that the party that once prided itself on moral character being a key requirement for public office now supported a divorced, crude, ill-spoken candidate. 
but he promised to do what had, been, what had not been promised since the 1990s, to fix Washington by draining the swamp. Through the years, whether controlled by Democrats or Republicans, the federal government only grew, its intrusion into daily life only expanded, and the tax burden and national debt only increased. Donald Trump may not have been the perfect candidate, nor the perfect president, and his conduct since leaving office may now be harming the good he might have been credited with years from now. But he did not apologize for his beliefs. He did not allow name-calling to pressure him into softening his positions. And he did not think that things in D.C. must be done a certain way, just because that is how they had always, or at least recently always, been done. If someone else, someone more mainstream, a Jeb Bush or a John Kasich or a Chris Christie, had been nominated, that person may or may not have beaten Hillary Clinton, as the dislike for her personally cannot be ignored in evaluating what happened in 2016. But had that person won office in 2016 or in a later presidential election, it can only be presumed that the balance of power would have continued to move leftward, away from traditional Republican Party principles, because so many of today's career or professional politicians appear more concerned with positive reviews and making friends than in making tough decisions that could lose friends and get bad media coverage, but get good results. There are, however, too many factors that played into the rise of Donald Trump to really evaluate them all, but aside from any others, growing dissatisfaction with a Republican Party looked more and more like Democratic light was an undercurrent in that result and in today's continuing internal struggles in the party. As many watched in horror, others with glee, and others just with a typical disgust at the state of affairs, the House of Representatives took 14 votes to elect a speaker because of a group of holdout Republicans who wanted some assurances that their party's claimed principles would not be abandoned. It must be acknowledged that though there likely was a better way to deal with these party differences to avoid a public embarrassment, both internally and internationally, it cannot simply be presumed that those unwilling to vote for Kevin McCarthy from the get-go are wholly in the wrong or wholly the problem. The more telling problem is what concessions many of these allegedly extreme Trump-supporting holdouts insisted upon getting from the Speaker in order to vote for him. When you look at those, quote, concessions, the real question should be why were all Republicans not already in agreement with what this small number of them was demanding? If reports are to be believed, here are the concessions and promises made to get votes for Speaker McCarthy. That any legislation to increase the nation's debt limit will be paired with spending cuts. That there will be more single-issue bills so that members are voting on narrow issues instead of thousands of pages of unrelated favors to individual members in their districts. At least 72 hours' time for members to read the actual bills they will vote upon before a vote will be called that the Speaker will at least hold votes on a balanced budget amendment, term limits, and a border plan for Texas's current border crisis. These sound suspiciously familiar, and much like the contract with America. What is currently wrong with the Republican Party certainly may, at least in part, be its continued tendency, at least for some, to look to Donald Trump as its leader. But perhaps rank-and-file party members wouldn't have had to look for so extreme a figurehead had so many of those elected as Republicans even not balked at the kinds of concessions I just listed. Concessions that used to be core principles of the party, and that, as mentioned, sound very much like the kinds of things that were the winning focus of 1994's contract with America. Yes, times change, but the party has changed towards the left, while those seeking an alternative to the Democratic Party have not shifted. If the party is to reunite as the party of limited and small government, adherence to the rule of law, restrained spending and lower taxes, and more freedom— it must at least acknowledge its recent missteps, 
and figure out a way to return home without the only road there being an unpredictable and often self-serving figure like Donald Trump. Trump is his own worst enemy, but he is also the party's enemy at this point. An objective review of his actual actions as president would reveal an incredibly successful Republican administration, but at this point, it is too easy for those opposed to Republican principles to vilify him for the party to rest its success there. What it is perhaps time for is for us to ask all those who voted for McCarthy as Speaker without joining with the small group demanding things that every Republican should support to inquire why this took 14 votes and why a simple meeting of the party did not result in these agreements before the first vote was taken. The New York Times tried to characterize this as some minority of ultra-conservative extremists holding Congress hostage. But that is only if you consider Republican policies favored by a majority of Americans since the 1980s to be extreme. How we got to that point is the real question that needs to be answered. The Republican Party, as is the Democratic Party, is a party divided in today's political world. But the only way to heal those divisions is to decide if the future of the party still rests on the same principles of limited government, self-reliance, and freedom that it once did. As always, thank you for listening. Perhaps Alexis de Tocqueville was right all those years ago when he said, There are many men of principle in both parties in America, but there is no party of principle. Another wise observation of de Tocqueville may go to the heart of the Republican Party's modern struggles, and that is in the language it uses to discuss its own positions and philosophy. For de Tocqueville understood how tightly we often cling to wording rather than substance. He wrote, The last thing abandoned by a party is its phraseology, because among political parties, as elsewhere, the vulgar make the language, and the vulgar abandon more easily the ideas that have been instilled into it than the words that it has learned. It is time for the Republican Party to stop focusing on the labels and the words, and return to what matters, what is really best for America, regardless of what those in opposition may call it. The next episode will dive into the history, present state, and future of the other of the two major political parties in the United States, the Democratic Party. Much like the GOP, this party finds itself today at a crossroads. One it may already have begun to cross to change its entire focus from the policies of classic liberalism to a party that would be almost unidentifiable to Democrats of less than a century ago. Today's Democratic Party is a far cry from the party of JFK or even of Bill Clinton, but it is not entirely removed from its earlier 20th century socialist tendencies. Whether it will continue its rapid drift leftward or correct course is anyone's guess but it doesn't look promising. Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you can share the podcast with just one person, we can continue to further the entire purpose for it, which is to encourage real discourse in society about the state of our nation. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solus-veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solus Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Susceptor. Copyright 2023.